MedBridge provides evidence-based courses, unlimited CEUs, home exercise programs featuring 6,000 plus exercises, and so much more. Use promo code THEADVANTAGE, that is T-H-E-A-T-V-A-N-T-A-G-E, to get an annual MedBridge subscription for as low as $225. Hey everyone, welcome back to Reframe the Game. I'm so happy to be here today. I'm happy to share some more lessons, some more wisdom, some more learnings from my life and my experience with all of you today. So today we are going to talk about the rules and the unspoken rules and cultural norms of athletic training and some of those beliefs that may be holding us back, both as individuals and as a profession. Now, I know in earlier episodes, I alluded to this idea of the AT culture scape and having an episode about the culture scape and, and what that is and what that means. But as I was thinking about it and as I was preparing for this episode, I thought it would be you know, helpful if we looked at the the consequences of the culture scape, yeah, not only at the culture scape itself, but the consequences of the culture scape that that has on athletic training and where we are uh, in, as a profession and where we can go as a profession. And so this, this, I hope this episode will help us identify some common beliefs that are holding us back and then perhaps increase our awareness so we can begin the process of dismantling the beliefs that keep us from becoming extraordinary or keep us stuck in this place, which seems like a cycle uh, that few people are able to break out of in athletic training. Uh, and, and, and sometimes you do break out of it, but then you get sucked back in. So we're going to, we're today, we're going to talk about, we're going to review absolute truth and relative truth really quickly. We're going to talk about the culture scape, and then we're going to start talking about these uh, these rules that or these beliefs that keep holding us back. And then I'm going to go over five of these that five of these rules that hold us back, and these beliefs that are holding us back, and these cultural norms that are holding us back in athletic training, and perhaps try to raise our awareness so we can do our best to try to come up and create create creative solutions uh, to circumvent some of these cultural norms as we as we try as we as individuals try to live an extraordinary life as an athletic trainer and as we collectively as a group of professionals work to improve the climate of athletic training for the patients that we work with for the stakeholders and and for other and future athletic trainers who for other other and future people who may be attracted to athletic training but don't see a pathway for them because you know they don't want to fit into what the current cultural norms are so a quick quick review of absolute truth and relative truth if you want a more in-depth uh explanation of this, go back to the How to Live an Extraordinary Life as an Athletic Trainer episode uh, where I break this down a little further. But anyway, an absolute truth is the truths that are about the physical world that we live in, the physical world of things, and we're likely to agree upon. So like a rock, a rock that is hard, uh, water is wet, fire is hot, 
you know, uh, dangerous animals have sharp teeth that could hurt us if they bite us, right? We're all, most of us, the vast majority of humans are, are likely to agree on these things. And so they're absolute truths and it's the physical world of things. Relative truths, on the other hand, is really the world that we live in. Um, although we live in an absolute world, we, where we have absolute truths, like water is wet, fire is hot, rocks are hard. Most of our modern society operates from a place of relative truth. And relative truth is the mental world of ideas, constructs, concepts, models, myths, patterns, rules, cultural norms that we have developed and passed on from generation to generation for sometimes hundreds or thousands of years, right? Um, and, and these can not only happen at the societal level, but they can also happen at a family level, or they can happen at a profession-wide level, or they can happen at an organizational level, right? So uh, this, this, these, this mental world of ideas of what's appropriate, what, what is the way, what, how are you supposed to act in a certain situation, what are, what's appropriate clothing, what's an appropriate way to communicate with patients, what does it mean to be an athletic trainer, what does it mean to be a good athletic trainer, how do we learn as athletic trainers, what side of the road do we drive on, right? Like, um, you know, the concept of money, the concept of time, all of those are relative truths that have been created by humans, right? And they have, and, and they're essentially ideas and constructs and models that help us navigate the world and make sense of the world. Um, and the, the, the funny thing about relative truths are that it's, it's amazing and it's awesome that they were able to come from our mind, but the challenge is when they've been passed on or ingrained in our society at whatever level that society is, or that culture is, they sometimes get confused with absolute truths, right? They're just the way the world is. And this is just the way athletic training is. This is just the way the athlete, the way athletic training will always be. And, and the challenge with that thinking is that when we believe that relative truths are absolute truths, they now cannot be challenged and it's more difficult to change them. And so I hope through this episode, we can talk about some of the common athletic training beliefs that may be holding us back. Now, I will say that, that, that some of these beliefs that I'm going to talk about as relative to athletic training are also just what it, part of what it means to be a quote unquote hardworking American, right? Some of these are uniquely American values. Some of these are industrialized society values. Um, some of these are healthcare values, but the, the way we've organized them um, help us create the relative truth of what it means to be an athletic trainer and, and how one navigates the world as an athletic trainer and how one survives and thrives as an athletic trainer. And, um, so, so when you're listening to these, when, 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 as I get into some of these beliefs that are holding us back, the, you may connect with these not only on an athletic training level, but maybe on a personal level or maybe on a familial level, because these were truths, relative truths and ways about the world that were passed on to you by your local society, by your family culture, right? Maybe from your parents who, who got that from their parents, who got that from their parents, right? Um, so these happen both at the micro and the macro level. So 
a lot of this and, and the, the space of beliefs that hold us back, um, or as Vishen Lakahani puts it, rules, which stands for bullshit rules uh, that that dictate the way we work in in society and, and in the world are really re- are based in relative truth. So when so so moving forward from that, when when we have this world of absolute truth and relative truth in the absolute world, if you're standing on a vista or a plateau or a mountain and you're looking out into the valley, you can see the landscape, right? So you can see the physical world of things, the cumulative, the, the cumulative effects of nature, all of the rocks, all of the trees, all of the, the sunrise or the sunset or the river or the creek or you know the rock face that may be in your field of view. And that creates the landscape, right? that shapes how we view our environment. So in the world of relative truth, there is what's called the culture scape. And the culture scape is, if we're gonna use the landscape, if we're gonna make the comparison of the landscape, right? Where a landscape is a view of a wide range of physical, of our physical world, right? A culture scape is the cumulative rules, beliefs, and norms that shape how we feel we should live. and for the most part for, for for not the most part but for the vast majority of the culture scape these these cumulative rules beliefs and norms that shape how we feel we should live work right they work they keep us they keep us safe they keep us protected they allow us to be productive right but i think as we've as we've learned that the culture scape has maybe maybe working to keep a certain group of people or certain groups of people safe and protected and to remain in power, to remain in positions of authority. And it may not be inclusive to the physical world that we live in, in which we have, or, or, or we've been, we've eliminated voices from our culture scape and ideas from our culture scape because they go against what the, the, the traditional seats of power in either society, in, in whatever society that may be, athletic training, in the athletic training culture, in in American culture, in the world culture, wherever that is, right? They differ or they conflict with the with the the thoughts and the beliefs and the rules and the norms that the people in power believe that that we should feel and how we should live our lives right so you know one of let's 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 think about one of these uh, a culture a cultural idea and a, a piece of the culture scape that you know for many people it's okay but for some people it doesn't work and that's the 9 to 5 work day 5 days a week right the idea that you have to work 40 hours a week or 35 hours a week and that's what a full-time job is and anything less than that is not a full-time job um, or so, so that's, that's a, that's a, that's a cultural rule that I believe that many people would, would say, well, that's just the way it is. Like, that's just what my employers are doing, but that came from someone's mind. Right. And if that works for you, that's great. If that doesn't work for you, then you should challenge that and look outside of the nine to five work week. Right? And, and I think in athletic training, let's let's look at this from from the perspective 
that athletic training says that, you know, we typically have to work long hours that we don't see our family on nights and weekends. And that's just the way it is. And that can feel immovable, right? And you say, well, that's because the school system, that's when they do their sports. And a a good chunk of athletic trainers work for work in adolescents or young adults with, uh, for, for, for student or student athletes. Right. And that's when they can practice. Well, why do they practice then? Because someone said that we needed to be in school for this number of hours and this many a days and, and from this time to this time. And if you're not at school from this time to this time, and this, this little chunk of your time from seven to three is dedicated to this sort of activity. And that's what it is from the ages of five until you're 18, 22, whatever it may be. And, and that's the way we do it. And then anything, and then what you do is you do extracurricular activities after that time, right? That, that all, that's not a real, that's not a, that's not a real thing. Like that came from someone's mind and that came from a group of people's minds that this is the way the world should work. And, you know, that is, that feels really difficult to change, but, and that doesn't mean that we're going to change it. But we need to be able to open up our eyes and say, well, it doesn't have to be this way. Alternatives could exist if we have the will and the resources to change what to change the way it exists now. Now, I'm talking some of these things I'm talking about really do feel immovable because they they incorporate such large institutions. And there's a lot of inertia that keeps these things in place, just like the people who are in power who designed them to keep these cultural norms in place, right? That was by design. It wasn't by accident that they were designed to be really difficult to move with a lot of inertia and a lot of red tape and a lot of challenges to change them. That was that was by design. And But when we talk about athletic training, while some of these things may be by design, there are alternatives that we can create. And so when we look at the culture scape and we examine all of these rules, the, these beliefs, these cultural norms that tell us how we should live, we have to be able to identify those beliefs that serve us, those beliefs that are neutral to us, those cultural norms that are neutral to the way we, we live our lives. Um, and then we have to identify those beliefs or those cultural norms that may be holding us back. And that's really where I want to spend most of, of the conversation today. And, and those beliefs that are holding us back are called the, uh, Vishen Lakahani calls them the rules, or, or like, I, like I mentioned before, the bullshit rules. And these are the cultural norms of our society at whatever level that are limiting us. These are cultural norms of our society that are limiting us. And I think this is really interesting because if we can collectively identify beliefs or cultural norms that may not be serving us in the same way they originally were designed to do, or they've run their course and they've done what they needed to do to get us to this point, but those cultural norms will not keep us moving forward or progressing forward in a way that the current group of athletic trainers would like them to progress forward, then they're limiting us. This isn't to say that these cultural norms never served a purpose. This is simply to say that the cultural norms that have served us in the past may not be moving us into the future. And and I'll refer to cultural norms as beliefs because I, I believe that cultural norms are just beliefs set into a larger group of people. 
So it's a, a large group of people who believe similarly, and those people are in positions of influence. And that's what creates a cultural norm. They say, this is what acceptable behavior is. This is what unacceptable behavior is. This is what it means to be an athletic trainer. This is what it means to be not an athletic trainer. Um, and if you're, if you're an athletic trainer, great. If you're not, then you're out of bounds and we're going to shun you or we're going to isolate you or we're going to ridicule you. So others know that this is inappropriate behavior as deemed by us, right? As deemed by the people in, of positions of influence or positions of authorities. But if we are willing to challenge that and say, well, these aren't working for us anymore, then we have an opportunity to break free and and start the inertia start the momentum by breaking the inertia of these cultural norms and rules and these beliefs that are holding us back so we can make real change in the profession of athletic training so uh, this next little section i'd like to get into are the common beliefs that are holding us back in athletic training and so the first one that i've come up with is that you have to prove yourself to belong and I don't know if, if anyone else experienced this, but in my circle and for myself specifically, we all have stories of after we became certified, we still didn't belong. Maybe we had to be a GA and GAs weren't real athletic trainers yet. They were kind of like half athletic trainers, half not athletic trainers. And you had to, you had to demonstrate that you were one of the guys, right? You, you, you were in the old boys club to belong right? Even if, even if you, that's how you proved yourself. Like it was not enough to be an athletic trainer. If you wanted to be an athletic trainer in the, in the know, if you wanted to be, if you want to be a quote unquote real athletic trainer, if you want to be an athletic trainer that has the potential for influence, you have to prove yourself to belong. And what does that mean? What does proving yourself to, to belong mean? That means adopting some of the beliefs of the inertia of athletic training, always being available, never putting your phone down, always answering, always responding to a text, putting your family second, putting your family third, putting everything else in your life behind what it means to be an athletic trainer, right? Putting, you know, showing up on a Sunday when you have planned a vacation and you know, someone calls you at two o'clock in the morning and says, this is happening. And so I really need you to be there eight o'clock tomorrow morning, right? Or changing your schedule because someone else's, someone else's schedule changed. That's how you prove yourself, right? Being the first one in, being the last one out, right? That, that one kind of relates to another, to another, um, uh, another belief that's holding us back. I have a little later, but you know, being the one that sacrifices themselves for the quote unquote their team, right? That's what it means. And, and it also means that we, uh, we, we affiliate with the setting that we're in and we're all in on the setting that we're in. And that's, and that's how you prove yourself. Right. A and that may be, you know, you, you wear a fanny pack or a sling pack, or, you know, you, you wear khakis and a polo. That's how you prove yourself. That's how you belong. Um, you are the, you're willing to, you know, do the work 
that you're, you're willing to quote unquote, do the work, whatever the work is. And I'm sure all of you can identify what quote unquote, the work is, um, for you, but you have to prove yourself. There's like, there's this X and no one ever says it, right? That's the, that's the thing about beliefs that are holding us back because no one ever talks about them because it's just what it is. It is what it is because we've created this cultural norm that there's like this hazing almost this initiation that has to happen for athletic trainers. If you're not drowning the first year you're an athletic trainer, you're not really, you're doing it wrong, right? Everyone drowns their first year as an athletic trainer. Like somehow that that's normal, that that's typical, that to feel miserable in your first six weeks of work is, is what it's all about, right? Like we we lost the memo on that somewhere, right? But there's like this, there's this, this, this sense that you have to be hazed or you have to prove yourself to belong. And it's different for every little microculture, but in general, you know, I believe that that belief is holding us back because from the get-go, after you pass the BOC exam, you are, even before you pass the BOC exam, right? Think about this when you were a student and you had your preceptor or approved clinical instructor or CI or what, 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 whenever you went through athletic training education, or whenever you went through the internship model, you had some mentor, you had some person above you who you had to prove yourself to, right? If when, and so, and if you were, if you changed clinical site or you changed mentor, you had to do it their way, right? We have to do it this way because this is the way that we do it here. If you know, like it's the Kent games way or it's no way that you have to stretch this certain way. You have to put on the tape job this certain way. You have to fill up the water bottles this way. You got to stir your Gatorade or your favorite sports drink this certain way, right? You got to put the ice in first then put the Gatorade in and then fill it a quarter of the way up with water, stir it, put some more ice in, put some more water in, stir it again, right? Like whatever it is, right? You somehow have to do it their way or, or you don't belong. And that's really just, I mean, when I was in it, when, when I was, I'm still in it. Like that's, let's, let's be honest. If we're athletic trainers, we're, Ill, we're all in this culture, right? Even if we're working to be heretics or we're working to try to break this, break the cycle. We're still in the, we're still in the cycle. Right. But as I was a when I was an early career athletic trainer, I was in it, right? Like that, that, that's what it was. And I, I totally accepted it. Like, this is what I have to do. Yeah. This really sucks. Yeah. This is no fun. Yeah. This is, this seems a little disrespectful. It seems a little off. I don't know why people would do this, but that's what I did because I needed to belong. And I needed to prove myself in order to belong. But what if in a world that we could we could let that go? And instead of having to prove ourselves, we had a better transition to practice. We understood that and when people pass the BOC exam, they are not, they, 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 they are ready to not hurt people, but they need support. They don't need to prove themselves. They need support so they can successfully transition. And what does that look like? That maybe that looks like giving them a decreased patient load at first. Maybe that looks like having a six-week transition period, a six-month transition period, where at the end of the, at the end of that six months, the goal is to have them practice by themselves. But for six months, they're assigned an on-site mentor 
not someone that like checks in on them every couple of days, but they're assigned an on-site mentor that helps transition them and provides them so the support that they need. Maybe that means giving them some extra days off. Maybe that means giving them some extra time to do their documentation. Maybe that means giving them some extra time and mentorship and navigating difficult conversations or crucial conversations that they have in the workplace, right? That's a, and, and, but you belong from the beginning and we demonstrate your belonging by offering support. And that's just one alternative way to flip this belief that's holding us back into a belief that could support us and transform the direction we're going. The second rule that I, or the, the second kind of belief that I have that's holding us back is the common belief that hard work equals success, right? The harder I work, the more successful I'm going to be. The more hours I put in, the better I'm going to work. The, the more I sweat, the more I grind, the more I hustle, the better I'm going to become. The more successful I'm going to come, but good, I'm going to become. And when there are opportunities to work harder or take positions that require longer hours, or that, that that's what I am supposed to do, right? That's again, that's what I'm supposed to do to belong. I have to be the first one in, the last one's out every single time. If I'm somehow not the first one there, where I'm not the last one out, I'm doing something wrong, or I'm not being as good of an athletic trainer as I can be. Um, and that we we idolize jobs that come that that come with it, long hours, and unpredictable schedules, and sometimes days that runs into nights that runs into mornings. Now, I'm not saying that that those positions or those jobs are not valuable and people shouldn't do them. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. I'm, if, if that's what you want to do, then do it. But we shouldn't shame people. We shouldn't shame people for not wanting that. And they can still be successful and they can still identify and they can work less. They can work smarter. They can work in, they can, they can measure their value and their worth in quality not necessarily quantity, and they can still be successful. And if if we, but we still want to, we still want to demonstrate our value through the number of patients that we've seen, the the amount of money that we've saved, right? The number of people we've helped. Right. So, and all of that is, all of that is related to quantity as opposed to quality. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't measure qual quantity. What I'm saying is that we need to measure both quantity and quality. And when we, we, and we can still be successful with low quantity, but high quality work. Right. So, and, and that work doesn't have to be stressful. That work can come with ease. That work can be quote unquote easy. That work doesn't have to cause emotional distress. That we can take a break and still be on the same career trajectory. We can take a break and move and have a steeper career trajectory if we choose. We don't have to work hard to be successful. Now, personally, I hold an individual belief that there is effort, energy, and activation energy, 
and persistence and resilience and adaptation that's required for success. Some people may say, well, that's hard work. And I would counter that to say that the belief that's holding us back is that you must work hard all the time to be successful, right? I think, you know, for, for, I think a, a perhaps a more healthy belief would be hustle when you have to enjoy life when you want to, right? Like, so yes, uh, yes, there will be times when you have to, you have to hustle or work hard. Absolutely. I'm not disagreeing with that, but we can also choose rest whenever we want. And that doesn't that does not equate to our success as an athletic trainer. And, and it's okay if you want to take a break because maybe what, what success looks like to you is not what success looks like for others. And I think we all have the ability to determine what our, what our level of success is, right? We, we, you know, we have, do you want to be a star, a rock star or a superstar? Right? Many people could be satisfied with being a star, and we should celebrate that, that they want to be a star. Many people are, are satisfied with being a rock star, and, and many people want and have a desire to be a superstar. And we should celebrate that success at each level. And that, and that requires different levels of work and different balances of work or unbalances of work and different levels of momentum and inertia. But they're all they're all ways to be successful as an athletic trainer. So in you know it's adopting that hustle when you have to mentality as opposed to grind all the time. It's a subtle difference, but it's it's really it's I think it's a critical difference. And with any of these beliefs that hold us back, if this belief doesn't hold you back then don't change it, right? If grinding all of the time serves you very well and you're not having any signs or symptoms of burnout or of languishing or of emotional fatigue or of you know lowering your psychological ownership of the work that you're doing and, the, your, and your professional career and you're not developing cynicism, then of course don't, it, it's, it's not holding you back. It's not a belief that is holding you back. So keep going, right? Keep on charging. But if you do find yourself, if you do find that this belief is holding your back, then we can reframe that. We can look at it from a different perspective and collectively create a new path forward for ourselves as, as a profession. The next belief that I want to talk about is to be respected, you have to disempower others because we were disempowered by those we respect. And this one is, I think, one of the most nuanced beliefs that's holding us back in athletic training. And, and, it's, and it's kind of the most subversive in the fact that it's right under the surface, but no one ever wants to talk about it. And we frame it in all sorts of different ways, right? So I'm going to read that one again. To, to be respected, you have to disempower others because we were disempowered by those we respect. And 
What I mean by this is oftentimes in athletic training, we have the need to say and compare ourselves to other athletic trainers, right? Well, I'm better than you because I work here or I have this and you don't, or we have this, we, we feel like the need, we need to disempower our patients. Well, Johnny doesn't want to come in because Johnny doesn't want to work hard. That's disrespecting a patient. Johnny just doesn't care about his recovery, right? I just don't understand why Johnny doesn't want to come in. So we're, we're disrespecting people or we, dis, we, we, we disempower other people on social media when they have different viewpoints than us because we're looking to gain respect or we disempower, we, we disempower our colleagues at work. We disempower people for choosing themselves. And sometimes this is outward, and sometimes this is an inward judgment that we're making on other people. And I believe it's because we've been dis- disempowered by those people we respected at some people at some point in our careers. And maybe you're not disempowered at this moment, but if you take a look back at your AT origin story or your history as an athletic trainer, if you think just a little bit, you can probably identify one person or multiple per- people or multiple or an instant or multiple instance in your life as an athletic trainer specifically where your thoughts, beliefs, values, opinions, professional diagnoses were not were not respected and you were disempowered. Maybe it was a physician who was dis- disempowering you. Maybe it was a parent who was disempowering you. Maybe it was a preceptor who was disempowering you. Maybe it was a faculty member who was disempowering you. Maybe it was a boss who was disempowering you. Maybe it was a colleague who was disempowering you. But at some level, and maybe it, maybe it was someone you were, they were technically a coworker, but you were the newer employee. And so you had this level of respect for them and they disempowered you. You may not respect them anymore, but in that moment, perhaps you had some respect for them. And we pass this on from generation to generation, from athletic trainer to athletic trainer. And it's, and it's, I think it's become such a, I don't even want to say a cornerstone because that, like, I think that gives it more respect than it deserves or a more place that it's, it, it's become such a rite of passage for athletic trainers that we don't even see it anymore as something that's a challenge right? It's like, well, the coach just didn't agree with me. No, the coach was disempowering you. The coach was disempowering you because you made a decision that was counter to what they believed should happen. And so you were disempowered from making that decision, right? And we somehow just, and, and, and now we feel like that's, that's how we've been, that's how it's been modeled to us that how you gain respect is to disempower someone else. And, and, and you can, you can look at this from all sorts of different ways, but I I do think that this perhaps requires a larger discussion in, in athletic training. And I don't, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if there is an, a simple or easy solution to breaking the cycle of disempowerment of one another. Um, 
within the profession, on social media, between affinity groups, right? Um, between professions, between different professionals and different professions that may bump, that may bump up against athletic training, uh, between athletic trainers and parents, between athletic trainers and administrators, between, you know, athletic trainers and HR and pay and all, all of these things, right? It's we've, we've built a culture in which we're constantly disempowered and to, to, to find and to create a place where we can feel safe or respected, we feel like we have to disempower other people too. And maybe we don't even feel like we have to. It's is just what we do. And now, now some of you may be listening and saying, well, I'm not a mean person. And I'm not saying anyone's a mean person. I'm saying that that this is a belief, a, a commonly held cultural norm that we have at an athletic training that we are all participants in. We're all participants in this, in this belief in athletic training, whether we have quote unquote disempowered someone else or not, or witnessed this someone being disempowered, or we have thought about, uh, that person's not right. Right. Or this person is just wrong. Um, we're, we've all participated in it. And that's why I think it's so ingrained in what it means to be an athletic trainer. And again, maybe this is what it means to be in a healthcare profession. I have no idea, right? Maybe it's what it means to be an American because we feel like we all have all been disempowered as an Amer as Americans. I don't know. So maybe this is bigger than athletic training, but it's, it's something that I see in athletic training and I've seen in athletic training more acutely in the last five to seven years, um, that maybe I was naive before that. But, uh, as I've, as I've explored this, it appears to be more prevalent than it has been in the past. Moving on to the fourth belief that's holding us back. And that's the belief that athletic trainers are helpers. And again, this isn't this in and of itself doesn't sound like it's a, it's a something bad. And I don't think the fact that athletic trainers view themselves as helpers is a bad thing. I, I believe that, that the belief that athletic trainers are helpers, I'm here to help you, is a subconscious way that we tell ourselves we need to be everything to every person. And it's a, it's a subconscious way that we reinforce some of these other behaviors that we're trying to move away from, like not working all the time, setting boundaries and not being available on our phone or text message or to take phone calls outside of work hours, right? you know, that's where I, that's where I think this becomes a challenge, right? I, I think it's awesome that athletic trainers are helpers and athletic trainers want to help people. But when we say that and we use those words, I'm here to help you. How can I help you without then following up with a clear explanation of what our role is in the healthcare system and what our role is in your pathway, we open ourselves to be stretched so thin that we then can't help ourselves. And we also feel incompetent because they're asking us stuff that we can't help with. And, you know, how do we shift away from this? I, I think it's, it's, you know, there's a couple ways you could do it. One, you could, you know, say, how can I help you? And then in the conversation, talk about here's my role in your healthcare. And you, you clear, you clearly place the boundaries in what are, what your role is. 
You see physicians do this. You see some other healthcare professions do this, where they place boundaries on on what the role they have in the what 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 relate what's the role of their relationship as related to their health. And sometimes athletic trainers just say, "How can I help? How can I help you?" And then the request is, "Yeah, I really could use some help if you could go pick up all the cones on the football field or something like that." Right. And then, then we feel disrespected. We feel disempowered, but we asked, we, 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 we asked, we told them, how can I help? Right. Or we're introduced as, Hey, this is your athletic trainer. We're here to help you. We're here to help you do what? Right. So putting, so, so clearly delineating what the role of an athletic trainer is and setting boundaries around that or and I think and not or and we can set this up more clearly for ourselves by creating a professional identity as a healer not a helper okay I think physicians have a professional identity as a healer and I think the and and maybe I don't maybe physicians don't but I I believe the culture has a a viewpoint that a, a physician is here to help is here to heal you Right, you come to them when you are hurt, when you are ill, and the physician's role is to help you heal, right, or to heal you through their ability, their diagnosis, the medicines that they put you on, etc. And I, I believe that athletic trainers, as healthcare providers, can make the shift to I to holding on to the professional identity as a healer and as opposed to a helper. Now, that doesn't mean that a healer works alone. Physicians refer to other practitioners all the time. Athletic trainers can refer to other practitioners all the time. But for us as athletic trainers, by I, by creating a professional identity around healing and health as opposed to helping, we are constructing our boundaries for ourselves and for others. And, you know, again, this is something that I think early on in our, in the professional life, you know, the project, the professional life, professional timeline of athletic training, it was really helpful to be helpers because when people, no one knew what we were supposed to do, being helpful was a way to generate our value. And so maybe our value wasn't in patient care. Maybe our value is that we were, we were extra hands on the on the sideline, right? And that's that's where people saw our value. And early on, that's what we we were okay with that. But I think as we've progressed, perhaps it's time to retire the helper mindset and embrace the healer mindset. And the last rule that I want to talk about, or the last belief that's holding us back, is uh, this belief that. You can be fulfilled as an athletic trainer, but if you want, insert whatever desire you want here, you have to leave the profession. In order, in, in other words, you can't be an athletic trainer and have the life you really want. Somehow being an athletic trainer requires a compromise with some other piece of your life. Or so you, have to, you have to give up a desire that you really want or a goal that you really want to achieve in order to be a successful athletic trainer, in order to be an athletic trainer at all. And I think this one is really interesting because 
we 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 love be, many of us love being an athletic trainer. We're fulfilled by it, but then we always say, "Well, I want a family, or I want more flexibility in my schedule, or I want to be able to travel more, or I want better work hours." Right? And we we come to this place where we can't find a resolution between being an athletic trainer and having this desire. And so, what we what do we do? We choose to leave the profession, right? And there are there are probably tens of factors, if not hundreds of factors, that play into this, right? But we but but I think it's it's interesting, particularly in the COVID world, right? Like this is recorded, you know, two two and a half years after COVID um, first arrived, uh, COVID nineteen first arrived, and we're seeing a drop in the number of athletic trainers. There was like the perfect storm that the transition to the master's degree happened at a period of time when COVID-19 was happening. And it happened at a time when the total number of people going to college was diminishing. And it happened at a time where we are just on the cusp of a really different economic time where we have high inflation, you know, a depending on your definition, a recession, right? And so so that also creates environments where people may not want to pursue higher education. So we have this decrease in supply where we have an increase in demand. And then we also have current athletic trainers who are working, who are leaving the profession because they can't, they, they don't, we have made the profession incompatible with living your life's desire. Now, this may there there are obviously exceptions, right? There, there are exceptions, but we we as athletic trainers and the people who hire athletic trainers and the you know sports industrial complex has created a a a, a situation where we can't have what we really want and be an athletic trainer. And that belief is devastating. That's devastating for people who have invested their careers, their lives, a lot of money to become an athletic trainer. And then they get to this point where they just don't see another option. And so we all, more often than not, we're going to choose ourselves. And so we leave the profession behind. And that generates more stress on the system that generates more challenges for those who remain that and you know you put this into the larger context we have less people coming into the profession um and a, a refusal by the a refusal by the greater system to change to increase salary a refusal from the greater system to say athletic trainers are worth more or and, and it may not be about money right? It may be about how you can have the life you want and be an athletic trainer, right? We're not even willing to budge that much on money, but what if it's not about money, guys? Well, folks, what if it's not about money? What if it's about work conditions? What if it's about flexibility in the schedule? What if it's about the the, the ability to take time off and not feel guilty or not feel shamed, like you're somehow letting someone down, right? It, and and we believe this this is a this is a belief that's holding us back and it's a cultural norm that's holding us back 
And I don't know what the if there is an easy solution, but we have to start talking about it. We have to start having these conversations. And fortunately, I think we are having some of these conversations. We're framing it around the concept of money and medical care, but we're not framing it around the con- around the conversation of what if it's not about money? What if it's what if it's about the ability to self-actualize as an athletic trainer? What if it's about the ability to have the life we love and be an athletic trainer and have the life we love by being an athletic trainer, not just, not just as an athletic trainer, but being a human who is an athletic trainer. And, and as a human, we have all these other desires and that athletic training isn't an all consuming profession. That athletic training isn't the, the, you know, the salt mines that we're going to go toil away at and just, you know, be thankful that we made it home another day. And I challenge all of you who are listening right now to ask yourself, what is it going to take for us to realize that the trajectory that we are on as a profession collectively is not sustainable? The way we're working, the way we are being worked, the choices we are making to continue to work and not stand up collectively and not support those who are individually willing to stand up and say enough is enough? Where are we going? Where are we going to end up? I have fears about the profession in general and the future of what athletic training looks like. I have hope as well, but I have have some, some trepidation about what we look like in 10 years. And, and what I mean by that is how many of us are left? How many athletic trainers are going to continue to have to say, I'm going to put my life on hold because I want to be an athletic trainer. If you look at some of the recent demographic information from the BOC, it's really interesting, right? Over 50% of our profession has less than 10 years of experience. And then after that, it like drops off dramatically. And I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to start to see some of these challenges where we have a leadership vacuum, where we have an opportunity vacuum, where we have a, 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 a bulge of people, right? A, a surge of people in the younger portion, early career portion of their careers. And then they're choosing to leave the profession right when they're hitting mid-career and they when, when employers will be thinking about perhaps this person could be eligible for a leadership position. And then we're going to continue to have this leadership vacuum in the profession. I don't know what that looks like, but I think what what may be a, what may happen one one response from the employer side may be to start to promote people who are younger. And are we prepared to have or are, are we preparing our early career athletic trainers to be in leadership roles? Are we, are we effectively providing the right, uh, the right amount of post-professional education? And when I say post-professional education, I mean formal post-professional education, like doctor of athletic training programs or residency and fellowships programs, but also informal post-professional education, like continuing education, right? Are we, are we doing that? Are we prepared for this demographic shift that's that's happening and then you then you look at the larger picture of the decreased number of athletic trainers who are entering the profession now we're going to start slowing down the the 
the the input as well. And then we have this this magical time about 10 to 15 years where we just it just drops the bottom drops out of the number of athletic trainers. And we'll have to see over time what happens. But if if we're unwilling to challenge this belief that we can't be an athletic trainer and have a life and have what we really want in life, then I really fear for what our the future of our profession looks like and the difficult the difficulties that uh, that await us in the next five to ten to fifteen years. And I really hope that we're able to start these conversations now because it's going to take five, 10, 15 years to create a solution because of the inertia that we have around some of these beliefs and some of the, the, the influence the inertia and the cultural norms have in deciding the direction of the professional organizations of athletic training, but also the mindsets and the beliefs of the individuals, individuals who are practicing as athletic trainers. And as I wrap up, I don't want this to seem like all doom and gloom. I know I got I hit a pretty serious note there at the end, and it's it, and, and and that is that is a, a, an accurate sentiment. That that that's accurately how I feel about about the changes that need to be that need to be happening and the conversations that need to be happening now, not in five, ten, or fifteen years. And the challenges we have to provide to ourselves and our colleagues and the professional organizations of athletic training so we collectively can work to a place that that is that creates a sustainable profession for all athletic trainers, not just athletic trainers who are members of the NATA, not just athletic trainers who are members of, you know, PFATs, right? Or PBATs or insert your professional society or professional. Uh, organization name, right? Not just people who are members, but every single individual who is an athletic trainer, right? That's what we have to be working for. We're not talking about the sustainability and the survivability of a professional organization. We're talking about the survivability and the sustainability of an entire profession, an entire occupation. So it's much larger than the NATA or a state organization or a district organization or anything like that. We're talking about the trajectory of an occupation in the United States and what that looks like in uncertain times um, moving forward. But I do hope that if this episode spoke to you, if you feel energized, if you want to have more conversations, you please share this with colleagues. You have conversations. Most importantly, have conversations with colleagues. The only way we can move forward is if we have conversations about this and we work to collectively raise the consciousness of and, and raise the awareness of some of these beliefs that we're holding on to that are holding us back. And that's the only and, and they're gonna be difficult conversations. People are gonna challenge you, you're gonna challenge other people, and that's part of the point. And we can do that in a respectful way that grows our community and and creates a stronger community of athletic trainers who are resilient and and, and can persevere through difficult the difficulties that likely will come. So please share this. And I look forward to hearing the conversations. And and I want to see athletic training succeed. I want to see athletic training rise to the challenges that are faced 
that that it that is facing. And most importantly, I want to see every single human who has decided to be an athletic trainer be able to have the life they really, truly, authentically in their deepest parts of their soul desire and be an excellent athletic trainer at the same time. Advantage is the premier provider of non-traditional work, advocacy, and resources while pushing the boundaries of athletic training. Follow them on social media at The Advantage and join their email list for an even deeper dive into all things non-traditional and access to even more boundary-pushing content.